1: Um, I first saw the book, uh, You're Not As Crazy As I Think, and some are thinking, yeah, you're crazier than I think. I thought, <laughs> uh, well, I'm not so sure about the content, particularly in the um, talking point sheet that came along with it, the opening line of which is, would you choose God over truth? And as I, as I look at it, I don't see this as necessarily a mutually exclusive or an either-or proposition, but in fact, it being one and the same. That said, as I got through several of the chapters... As we talk about how we define truth, how we arrive at it, and then how we share it, one observation made by the author of this book, Randall Rouser, caught my attention. And this is a question I think all of us ought to be compelled, if not required, to ask of ourselves in in the silence of our prayer room or when we have that alone time just with ourselves. And we think about not only our relationship with God and how we view him and how he has an opinion of us, which we clearly can delineate from Scripture, but then to how others see us. Now, here's the real test. As you think about your friends and your acquaintances and your family members and the manner and fashion in which you have shared your faith or stood up for the sake of the gospel or given the answer for the hope that lies within, do your acquaintances, are they, are they awed by your faith or are they perhaps appalled by what some might consider to be either your ignorance or your arrogance? That's an important question I think all of us as believers ought to be compelled to answer, and then, dependent upon um, the answer that we arrive at, may become full circle into understanding more about what truth is, how we arrive at it, and how we apply it. At the core, that is the topic of the book tonight. Uh, Randall Rouser is a professor. In addition to being the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, You're Not As Crazy As I Think, he is Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Canada, author of a number of best-selling books, and joins us now to, uh, to help us go through this process of what it exactly means to to arrive at truth and then how we go about applying. And, and uh, Professor Rouser, thanks so much for being with us on the program tonight.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Craig. Good to be with
1: you. You know, first I think we we need to get to the core of one issue here and you know, we're we're having this conversation on the radio in the San Francisco Bay Area, so obviously this issue of truth what it is, how we define it is one that is is greatly debated in uh in the circles not only around the coffee groups, perhaps, uh, but certainly at some of the uh, locations of higher learning, like uh, Cal State, Berkeley and others, University of California, rather, Berkeley, um, we talk about truth. Is truth something that, like time, we can define and, and accurately, ultimately measure?
0: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of confusion about truth. I remember I was giving a talk once, and uh, I wanted to actually I was talking about the Da Vinci Code way back when that was the big thing. And I wanted to talk about historical truth and how the Da Vinci Code gets it wrong. And right away, someone puts up his hand. I could tell he was a university student, and it turned out he was a university student from an English department of a secular university. His first question was, what is truth? Well, and that just shows that there's a lot of skepticism in a lot of different contexts in society over what truth is and whether we can even know it. In its core, I think defining truth is actually pretty straightforward. Um, we can, first of all, define it in terms of statements. A statement is true if it accurately describes reality. So if, if I say Edmonton is north of San Francisco, that statement is true insofar as it accurately describes reality, which it does. But truth can also be something more profound than that, although that is important. Jesus himself, in John 14:6, of course, describes himself as the truth. And that shows that truth can also be related to persons, And in that context, as Christians, I think we want to be people of truth, meaning that our lives match up to Jesus, our lives correspond to Jesus, in something analogous to that true statement matching up to reality.
1: Early on in your book, you make a statement that I think would set... A good percentage of of evangelicals are certainly those that would would label themselves in the fundamentalist category of Christian faith, perhaps on their heels. You you talk about the necessity to um, not only listen and learn from others, which is something that we don't always do a real good job of, particularly when said others have uh, differing worldviews or opinions that are really uh, diametrically opposed to ours. But then you talk about rethinking our truth paradigm. Uh, Elaborate on that point, would you please?
0: Um, can you say it again? You you
1: talk in the book about rethinking the necessity for us to not only listen and learn from others, but also to rethink our truth paradigm. What do you mean okay. by that?
0: Well, I mean, simply the, the challenge to, to be willing to ask the question, could I be wrong about something? And I mean, that's, you know, when, when I get into a disagreement with my wife about which one of us left the fridge door open, even that kind of question can get heated because each one of us doesn't want to admit it was the other that it was maybe us when you get into deep questions about the meaning of life it can become in that case very sort of frightening unsettling to think i could possibly be wrong about some pretty important things and yet, you only need to look around you to see how many people believe fundamentally different things about the world to realize there's a good likelihood that i've got at least some things wrong and i need to be willing to consider and ask where have I possibly got things wrong?
1: Do we also, in that in that consideration, as as we're rethinking our truth paradigm, need to maybe differentiate between the the, the big truths and the little truths? I mean, for example, uh, the point of leaving the refrigerator door open—you uh, know—dependent upon your relationship with your spouse. Sometimes, at the end of the day, it it might be might be to your advantage just to simply surrender that one, least you end up sleeping on the couch. <laughs> That said, there are other cases where we have to look at real key truths that we as believers maybe don't have to surrender per se, but ought at least to be open to engage in healthy dialogue. I mean, it seems to me that there's a good percentage of, of believers, evangelicals in particular, that, that that tend to want to just kind of believe what we believe because we believe it. And it's almost as if particularly from, from those that are on the outside looking in, in other words, the non-believers, that, that we tend to be kind of folks that, that, that will check our intellect at the church door.
0: I think often we, we view things like argument as, as being always negative. You know, so you sort of get the picture of the spouses fighting and one ends up on the couch, and that's an argument. But the root word from Latin for the word argue is to make clear or to shine forth. So in their best form, an argument as a reasoned, careful dialogue between two people who have very different opinions on something, in its best form, that brings a light to the situation. Because two people understand where the other one is coming from, and they may ultimately either have a deeper conviction after that argument about their own views, or they may have changed some of their views. But either way, people are going to grow through open dialogue with others.
1: One of the big challenges here, and I'm going to have you elaborate on this point and help clarify, shed some light on it, in fact, when we come back after a brief time out, and that is the notion that there are those who, who look at others who oppose our viewpoints or our opinions or our values. We might hold that they have a, a differing worldview, for example, or a differing moral values, um, that we, we tend to couch them in terms of, of, of immediate dismissal because we put them in the enemy camp. Uh, They see those who oppose our opinions or values as enemies. We're going to talk a bit about that and how dangerous that can be, particularly in the process of not just being truth seekers, but also truth sharers. Our conversation with Professor Randall Rouser continues, a look at your not as crazy as I think dialogue in a world of loud voices and hardened opinions. We'll get to uh, perhaps some of your voices and opinions, too, as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to the conversation. Try to take the fear out of the cognitive approach to our faith. Uh, we are not called to check our intellect at the church door, though oftentimes I think there's a good percentage of believers that do. Or when confronted by someone who comes from a differing worldview, uh, a different life experience, and may challenge our faith, you know, we, we kind of hide under the, well, we believe what we believe because we believe it, but we don't understand why we believe it or even how we came to that conclusion. Oftentimes, it, it's not even our own faith. It's the faith of our fathers. Not always a bad thing, per se. But we should never be afraid of, of engaging in good intellectual give and take, um, particularly so as we're trying to better understand not only who we are in our relationship with Christ, but then, too, to be able to share our truth about the gospel and who Jesus is with others toward that end our conversation tonight with the author and professor randall rouser the book is called You're not as crazy as I think. Dialogue in a world of loud voices and hardened opinions. Um, Come back to this point, if you would, that we touched on, uh, Professor, just before the break, the idea that oftentimes we kind of we kind of recoil in the thought of getting engaged in dialogue with others that have opinions that sometimes are diametrically opposed to ours because we we kind of tend to couch them and ultimately dismiss them because we see them as our enemies. Is that problematic?
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a real problem, especially when you have a pluralistic society, a society where people hold very many different views, because you just have the practical question, how are we going to get along? Now, I remember I was at a, a conference, just to give you a very concrete example. I was at a conference a few months ago, that I got into a conversation with um, a young man who was finishing his PhD in philosophy at Notre Dame University, so a very intelligent fellow, and We talked about the historical resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He had grown up in a Christian home, but he had looked at the the evidence for the resurrection, and he ultimately lost his faith over it. Now, the interesting thing is I've looked at the same evidence, and my faith is stronger today than ever. But through that conversation, I had to wrestle with the question, how does somebody very intelligent look at the same evidence that I'm looking at and draw different conclusions? And, and that's the kind of puzzle that can really shake people up. So we often have a way of restoring the comfort level when we encounter people like that. We can label them. The easiest thing to do is to label them. So to explain their, their lack of, of agreeing with us either from them somehow being not intelligent, but that didn't work in this case, because this guy was a PhD. The other option is to say, well, they're wicked somehow. They're just rejecting, refusing the evidence that's before them. The problem with that response is sometimes when you really get to know people, you just can't dismiss them simply as being wicked. And that just means that often things are a lot more complicated than we recognized.
1: So we label them to ultimately dismiss them as opposed to engaging them, which I think would suggest perhaps that we ourselves don't feel like we're on all of that firm foundation. That goes back to this, this notion that oftentimes we, we know what we believe, we just don't know why we believe it.
0: Well, and, and that's the sad truth, that often we would prefer to have a, a faith that we keep safe from everything, but which is not mature, rather than to go on and wrestle with things and come into a deeper faith. I had one student once come to me uh, at seminary. She was teaching an adult Sunday school class. She wanted to look at the historical evidence for Jesus in the Sunday school class, but one of the students said, we don't want to look at that evidence because we know of a couple students who went off to university and lost their faith. Now, that's just not... An adequate response. You, you mentioned First uh, Peter 3.15, uh, that we need to have a reason for the hope that lies within us. Paul said if we are wrong about the resurrection, we are to be pitied most of all people. We can never be afraid of looking at the truth. And we don't have to be afraid of looking at the truth. We should always look and consider the evidence, whatever it may be.
1: Are we afraid, perhaps, to look at the truth? Because, again, we're just not secure enough in it, and so we're afraid that that any um, uh, reasonable uh, examination might, perhaps, shake our own faith, and therefore we'd just rather avoid it?
0: Yeah, I think very often we we have to recognize that to, to, to consider these basic questions about faith, about worldview... They can shake up all sorts of things. For me, as a, as a professor at a Christian seminary, to honestly wrestle with these kinds of questions means I could be putting my job on the line. It means I could be putting my relationships in church on the line, relationships with family. So all of those kinds of things can make people very fearful that they don't even want to go down that road.
1: So then, I'm wondering uh, toward that end, Professor, is is part of the challenge then that we have as believers in in the way, and sometimes, and again, not to suggest that this is universal about all, but I I think there's a fair percentage of us that that kind of shrink back from engaging in the give and take and dialogue, uh, maybe because as we've as we've arrived at our own faith conclusions that it's been based on. What might have been for ourselves or, or, on behalf, or done on our behalf by others kind of a, a construction of our own truth as opposed to the dis- pure discovery of it? Does that question make sense?
0: Yeah, that, that we, we, can, we can choose ultimately to have a, a sort of simplified faith rather than to to face faith in all its complexities. Because you
1: can construct your own truth based solely on your your worldview or your life experience. I mean, oftentimes as as a a broadcaster and broadcast journalist, you know, this issue of bias comes up as well. We need to be uh, unbiased in our reporting of the news. And yet the problem with that is that it it discounts uh, some very important facts here that include that when we look at something, we always will look at it through the, the lens of our own life experience. In other words, if we came from a household where we had abusive parents and dad was an alcoholic, uh, there might be a predetermination that that's the way most relationships are. And so maybe in in our world view, because of our limited life experience, we don't allow for other truths or a broader truth because we're very limited. Does this become the same thing then? When it becomes applicable to our faith, that for example, if you've never—I'll go on a limb here—if you've never seen a miraculous healing, you conclude that they don't exist because you've simply constructed, quote unquote, your truth based on your limited life experience as opposed to going through the discovery process.
0: Well, yeah, like in in that case, you could have all sorts of reasons for saying there are no healings. Maybe the only experience you had with healing was a charlatan, somebody that was identified as being a charlatan. I mean, I know so many people, their assessment of Christianity has been skewed by the kinds of representations of it that they've met. So when I meet somebody who's really angry at Christianity, who's really antagonistic, the first thing they want me to know is that they're an atheist and they hate God or whatever. The first thing I want to ask is, what is it in their background that led them to have this kind of anger? You know, it's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, the first thing they're going to do is pull back and try to avoid those kinds of people. On the contrary, I want to get to know those people and know what it is that drives them. Now, now you mentioned the bias thing. I think we have to keep two things in balance here. On the one hand, we really need to be careful of our confirmation bias. Now, that's the tendency that everyone has to assess positively evidence that supports our position and to disregard evidence that doesn't support our position. Since we're in in an election year, just think about the average political, 30-second political attack ad. Classic case of a confirmation bias. Everything is painted as rosy for one candidate and totally negatively for the other candidate. Rarely is life like that. So we really need to be careful of our own confirmation bias. At the same time, we should never think we can completely escape it. We do, as you said, always come to reality from a perspective, and we would be naive to think we can ever completely remove ourselves from it.
1: See, this is where I think intellectual integrity all of a sudden now gets challenged, because as you point out in one of the chapters in the book, uh, you know, in the end, uh, those that we disagree with may ultimately not necessarily be ignorant, idiotic, insane or immoral, as sometimes we wish to uh, to characterize or paint them as? Because again, it's easy if we couch them in that category to dismiss them instead of allowing ourselves to be challenged and ultimately to defend the faith that we have. We're going to come back to more of this conversation as we're visiting today with um, uh, Professor Randall Rouser. The book is called You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Dialogue in a World of Loud Voices and Hardened Opinions. When we come back, dissecting the tendency that some of us have to uh, to utilize what we'll call urban legends in an effort to try and tell the truth and the intellectual dishonesty that that can bring about
0: and now back to lifeline with Craig Roberts
1: all right welcome back to the conversation uh, Randall Rouser is a professor in addition to being the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, You're Not As Crazy As I Think, you make a point inside the book that caught my attention only because I happened to be just this weekend watching a, a nationally known televangelist. I won't say any names, but he's based in um, Texas and uh, has an admittedly uh, thin uh, curriculum of Yate. That said, um, he, in illustrating a point that he was sharing, uh, told a story about some incidents that happened to some connected people related to 9-11 and the tragedy that unfolded in New York City. And, and as I heard him sharing the story, I just kind of went, okay, point A, point B, point, point C, connect the dots, and thought, if that isn't an outright, absolutely ridiculous fabrication in order to underscore the point that he was trying to share, which in fact could have easily stood on its own and you talk about in the book I think a similar example of this notion of using urgent legends in order to try and tell the truth what's problematic about that?
0: Oh that is that is a real problem within the church the church is There are so many urban legends that get propagated by evangelicals. Now, I mean, I don't know that we're that different than the wider culture because everybody loves urban legends. But if we proclaim ourselves to be people of the truth, then it becomes a real problem. So, I I do mention, for example, one in in the in the book about a a missionary who was in Africa and came back to his home church in Michigan, and he reported that twenty six angel guards had protected him in the forest in in Africa, and that was on the same night when twenty six people in Michigan were having a prayer service for him. Well, this story is told. I've heard it two times from the pulpit. The problem is it's a complete fabrication. If we need to go to urban legends to support what God is doing in the world, that discredits us. Yeah, the the, I mean, can the you notion of If somebody who knows that's an urban legend hearing that and they think that's the best you can come up with?
1: Well, that's what I thought. When I when I heard this sermon on Sunday and I was listening to the story that was being told and just quickly connected the dots, setting aside from what the point that he was trying to make and just connecting the dots. I thought to myself, if anybody who's a non-believer listens to this and is aware of any of the facts, even at the periphery, is going to say to themselves, this guy is a bold-faced liar. The notion of telling half-truths to make a whole truth point just doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, you know, Craig, it's like the, when you're on the used car lot and the used car salesman comes up to you and says, never winter-driven, and he starts saying all this stuff about this car. Is any of that true? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if, if the person believes that guy's only saying things to get you to buy the car, that's going to discredit him. When, Chris, when, when non-Christians look at Christians in the same way and think we're just like salespeople, we'll say whatever we can to close the deal, that discredits us as well. There's
1: another point to all of this that you, you dive into in the book that I think helps to, uh, to challenge the, 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 and stretch the intellectual um, integrity. Of believers, and that is the notion that that sometimes uh, not everything is as it seems to be. Uh, tell the uh, the red Corvette story, would you? By the way, when I read the story and got into it, I thought I know exactly where he's going with this, and of course, it's exactly where you lead us.
0: Yeah, uh, that story haunted me for a few years, so I thought I would use it for good. Um, several years ago, in the mid 1990s, my wife and I came to church. And rather than allow this to become an urban legend, I'll be specific. This was Christian Life Assembly in Greater Vancouver area. We came into the church. It was, the parking lot was packed. There was one spot I saw. So I pull up the car, and lo and behold, a red Corvette is parked diagonally, taking up two spots. So we had to park down the street. I was so incensed that this guy would do this on a Sunday morning, that I wrote a note, left it on his windshield, um, you know, a brotherly... Uh, imprecation. That yeah, you're going
1: to admonish him not to take up two parking spaces.
0: Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, forgot about it. Well, a week later, after the the worship in the in the church, the pastor, Pastor Brent, he said he starts describing how there was a little old lady in church whose car broke down, so she had to borrow her son's Corvette. Uh oh. Then he says she broke her. She had just broken her hip and she was having trouble getting uh, getting out of the car because it had such long doors, she had to swing the doors way out. So she parked at the edge of the parking lot diagonally so she wouldn't hit the next car over when she swung the door out. Well, you know, my wife just turned beet red and I was saying, ah, casual. (laughs) Who would have thought that a little old lady with a broken hip was driving that Corvette? The lesson I took out of that is never be too quick to judge a situation. We really often don't know where people are coming from. We have all our assumptions about the way the world is, but often those assumptions are wrong, and in my case, they were critically wrong. You
1: know, and the amazing thing about that story is that I think oftentimes we we, we have a horrible case of amnesia when it comes to our own faith journey. Uh, we assume that everybody ought to be at the same intellectual and faith position as we are, and we for oftentimes forget the process that we ourselves went through. I mean, are there aspects of my faith that is clear? and and stronger and has a better understanding today than it had five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Absolutely. We look at somebody else who doesn't believe as we do, and we assume that they're evil, that they're under the control of Satan, that they're ignorant, that just, we think of this list of awful things about them, not realizing that, you know what, they're probably just on a different position in their faith journey, or, or perhaps even if they've begun their faith journey at all.
0: So often we can, you're right, Like we're, we're just uncharitable. We forget about where we were. In fact, I have a friend who, he was the director of a homeless shelter for for a, about a year. And then he left that job. And a couple years later, he found himself in the downtown again. And he was looking at all these homeless people. And he suddenly realized where he used to look at them with compassion, now he looked at them with disdain mm. because he hadn't been around them. And he forgot where they're at in life and, and the kind of compassion he needs to have for them. So often we're in the same place. You know, I think, well, I've, I've grown up mature, you know, in my Christian walk. Why haven't you grown up? And like you say, we forget that we were in that same place.
1: You quote Richard Dawkins a number of times in the book. In fact, I've had him on the show. We've, we've had some interesting give and take at the end of the day. Uh, he had his opinion. I had mine. Um uh, you, you mentioned the fact, and, and this is what caught my attention, that, that he's, uh, he's baffled and astonished about my faith, and I, I will be honest with you, uh, Randall, as I've talked with him and heard his opinions and, and read some of his books, uh, as, as much as he's astonished and baffled by my faith, I am at his lack of, you know, lack of <laughs> same. I, and yet, I, I don't think we should ever be fearful of engaging these people because that, that exercise of our own understanding of the truth and how we arrived at it, I think is critically important and at the very least it will demonstrate to the people that we are trying to share our faith with that we've got intellectual integrity
0: i think not not everybody that you disagree with is going to be nice and i think richard dawkins is a great great example of someone who often in public debate and dialogue can be quite condescending and rude the first thing i would just say is, is christians should not reply in kind and you know, I, I do think. Uh, I mean, he does have a genuine perplexity about Christians, and I do think that that does reflect something of the own of his own categories that they're too simplistic. That he tends to dismiss anybody who disagrees with him as a faith head. I mean, this is his, the term he uses. You know, anyone who has a, a religious faith is a faith head, and that's just this dismissive, insulting term. But if that's the way he actually thinks, then when he meets an intelligent faith head, he just doesn't know what to do with them or how to categorize them.
1: And I guess that kind of takes us full circle to the point that we had made earlier, and that is that, you know, this notion that if somebody doesn't think, or believe the way we do, Uh, we shouldn't immediately go in and uh, assume that they are uh, evil or uh, working for the devil and things of this sort, Uh, that that everyone that we, uh, you know, find a point of disagreement with uh, over who God is and our faith and how mankind came into being, whatever the point might be, that these people are not always ignorant or idiotic or insane or immoral. They may just have uh, a, a different approach. They may not simply be as, as mature in their faith walk if they've even begun it.
0: You know, There's a great illustration in uh, Harry Blamer's book, The Christian Mind, where he, he says the Christian mind will look at a courtroom, and say the judge that has sat on that bench over those 40 years may ultimately be the most sinful person ever in the court because we don't know the human heart. And the, the sobering question for us is to ask those questions about ourselves, not just always focus on other people, but ask, where am I in my faith? Have I tested my own faith? Have I seen that it's genuine? Are others confirming it? Uh, there, there needs to be a lot more soul introspection. Because often we want to find ourselves over against other people to make ourselves feel better. And that can be a dangerous position to take.
1: And not to, um, you know, groupthink is an easy thing to do. Uh, It could also be very dangerous. Look at the branch of Indians, David Koresh. I mean, we can go on with lists of these these types where we just suddenly we we are with, quote, unquote, like minded people. uh, But sometimes the the decision process with some of these people may not may not be existent at all. Can you speak to that point?
0: Well, I would I would say it's a very dangerous position to be in. I mean, those are the extreme cases to be sure. But, but it is nonetheless a dangerous position to be in if you only interact with people that share a very narrow set of views with you. I mean, it's important to always be seeking to develop friendships relationships with other people. Over, in the last year, I've spoken twice at the Edmonton Atheist Society. I tell you, you get a lot of different views there that I wouldn't hear typically in seminary, and it's refreshing and challenging. So I mean, I try to do those things to expand my horizons, and I think that's something we all need to strive to do.
1: And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that as we began our conversation tonight, Randall, if we're fearful of engaging in that kind of give and take, it probably says more about our our own lack of, of intellectual and spiritual integrity than it does about the others, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, I think one thing I'd just like to say is a word about doubt, because many people are very afraid of doubt. If I begin to dialogue with other people and have doubts, the one thing i like to say is imagine two people, they're crashed in the woods in the middle of winter. There's a lot of snow. The one guy says, I can't feel any of my body parts anymore, um, but I feel great. And the other guy says, I got pain in all my hands and feet. Well, it's the second guy that's healthy. The first guy, frostbite has already set in. But the second guy that has the pain is the one that's healthy. And I think a lot of people, when they have doubts about their faith, that's a sign of a healthy spiritual faith, that they're having those kinds of questions, that they're wrestling with their faith.
1: And God is big enough to handle that doubt and you see the doubt of uh, the, the issue of struggle with this issue from you know, doubting thomas in the upper room to the totality you know lord i believe help thou my unbelief and i think we have to understand that it that it's a journey to be sure uh that truth as we pointed out earlier is is not something that we construct but rather that we have to discover and that along that that process here uh to 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 be awed by our faith is something that we ought to strive to do, for, for others to be awed by our faith, as opposed to be simply appalled by our ignorance or our arrogance. I appreciate the give and take on the program tonight, Randall. It's a great book, and I hope we get a chance to visit with you again.
0: Thanks for having me, Craig.
1: The book again called Simply You're Not As Crazy as I Think Dialogue in a World of Loud Voices and Hardened Opinions. And as I said from the very get go, first I thought, oh, gee, no, this is going to be something that we don't want to. We don't want to shake people's faith. In fact, it's good sometimes when our faith is shaken to the core and remains yet unshaken. The book, by the way, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information on Randall's website at Randall Rouser. That's Randall with one L, Randall Rouser, R-A-U-S-E-R.com. You're not as crazy as I think.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: It is an alarming statistic and one that both regionally in the San Francisco Bay Area and nationally is growing by an alarming rate. Would you be shocked to discover that approximately one out of three women, about 35% of the U.S. female population, at some time in their life has been the victim of domestic violence? Oftentimes, the violence takes forms beyond just simple verbal or physical altercations, sexual violence. Oftentimes, it spills into other areas of the family where even the children become victims. Women quite often are left with no other option but to run. But then in the running, the question becomes where? Where do you go? Going to a friend's house, maybe a relative? Well, the abusive partner or husband knows where they live. They just simply follow and bring the abuse with them. What options are available for women who find themselves victims of domestic abuse and violence where they can go find a place that can be loving? sheltering, give them an opportunity to get their life back on track again, all the while also welcoming their children. Joining me today in studio is the Executive Director of Shepherd's Gate Ministries, and Steve McCree, welcome to the program. Thank you. I guess the big answer to that question is, where do they go? What options do these women have? One answer is indeed Shepherdsgate.
2: Gate. Absolutely, Craig. Uh, we've seen over 10,000 women and kids come and live at Shepherd's Gate over the years, and uh, every one of them. That has come through has has found a relationship pretty much with Jesus Christ, and that just totally transforms our lives.
1: This ministry is a real grassroots ministry in every sense of the term, isn't it? I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. of the beginnings. This began as one woman with one house, with one burden to help women that were facing crisis circumstances. And this has grown into a ministry now 25, 30 years later that, as you say, has impacted the lives of tens of thousands of women and their families. That's fairly remarkable.
2: That's correct. it's, it's totally been totally God. And um, started a little three-bedroom house, 16 women in a very short-term program. We couldn't help them very long. And it's grown just in the past few years to two campuses. 90 women and children can live at a time. And the services, like there's 42 different classes we give them, all Bible-based. Their lives are literally transformed. When you see someone come in the door, um, the beautiful thing to me is they could come in literally black and blue, uh, certainly hopeless in their eyes, Uh, the kids dragging their their one little toy behind them or whatever, all their belongings with them, and they've escaped, and they're not—don't know what they're escaping to— and sometimes they first walk in and see the beauty that God's provided there in the, the actual physical buildings. They just weep and realize how much God loves them and how much the community, how many caring people there are. Because with no government support, it's all people in the community. And that's the way we uh, exist. Yeah,
1: you know, the irony is we, we hear of these statistics, 35 percent of women. Uh, at some time in their life will become victims of domestic violence of one sort or another. And of course, we know on the, the severe end of that continuum are women that are dealing with circumstances where the husband is physically abusive, sexually abusive, maybe is dealing with a drug or alcohol problem that spills over into now abusing the children. Women oftentimes are fleeing these circumstances. No sense of what they're running to. They just know what they're running from and feel as if there's no one that cares, no one that can help them. They're afraid to go f- to the authorities because oftentimes the the husband or the boyfriend is saying, you know, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you, or I'm going to kill somebody else in your family. So yes. they're, they're they're having to face a tremendous amount of uncertainty into which then, as they finally make up the courage, find the, the the it within themselves to flee. Oftentimes, right at the skin of their teeth, there have been cases of women that have changed their mind at the last minute and wound up dead. Yes, but now as they've flown out of that circumstance, they've got no resources, the husband's shut down access to the checking account, there's no credit card, they might be full-time mothers that have no marketable skills, where do you go? What relative do you call and say, by the way, not only do I need to get away from my abusive partner, but now I got a couple of young kids with me. And so in that sense, then Shepherd's Gate has really become kind of a an oasis for these women, hasn't
2: it? absolutely with the intensive programs and with the love of god uh, again they get everything they need to rebuild their lives for them and their kids and then also uh stops the cycle of abuse and you're talking about the abuse that can happen shepherd's gate really takes in women and kids that are homeless for any reason much of that is domestic violence Uh, one form of abuse is abandonment one gal came in with five kids Because her husband had taken the bank account, everything they owned, and she's on the streets. And within two months, uh, her life was completely turned around. She didn't know Christ when she came in, neither did her children. One by one, they found the Lord, and their their, um, entire demeanor changed so much. She knew there must be really a God for their kids to change that much. She had a house and a job within three months of coming to us. So they're not
1: only rescued from often very dangerous circumstances, they're given a sense of hope. In some cases, hope for the very first time. You were mentioning to me, Steve, off the air, of the story of one woman who has been involved in the Shepherd's Gate program for a while now, who literally, in in the middle of a, of a gathering, stopped and was crying and was expressing the fact that at that moment she was experiencing genuine, unconditional love for the very first time in her life, and this is a woman in her
2: forties. Yes, she's about 45 years old and just began bawling during our, actually yesterday's Bible study wow. my wife and I were giving. And she just said, it's the first time I've ever had love, experienced love from anyone, much less to understand that God loves me. And she said, you know, it's the first time I've ever been happy in my life, and it's the first time I've ever loved myself.
1: Mm. There's something different about the approach that Shepherd's Gate takes. I mean, there are plenty of women's shelters. We know about them. You can go online and you can find a whole list of them in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can go to the Yellow Pages and find them. Finding a shelter is one thing. Finding home, finding family, is something entirely different. As you look at the programs and services offered by Shepherd's Gate, distill down, if you would, Steve, for our listeners, what's the one single difference about Shepherd's Gate, from any of the other secular programs that are out there?
2: It is saturated with the love of God and the Word of God. And they learn that they um, have a Creator who has a purpose for their life. Uh, our belief is that most of the women that come through our doors had a call in their life, a purpose to fulfill by God, and that the enemy tried to take them out. And when they learn that they were created for a purpose and have a purpose... Then we wrap, as I said before, about forty-two different types of classes and programs—anything from job interviewing to parenting skills to budgeting—in with all the biblical principles they learn and the relationships that they they gain. It changes their life. Totally. It stops the cycle, as you mentioned. Stops the cycle totally. It gives them a brand new start. It Four generations. We've got one lady came in, and there's four generations in her family that were all touched by Shepherd's Gate. Wow. One young man was with us when he was five years old. He's now in his late 20s and was a pastor. And his brother was also with us when he was three years old. He and his wife now started a Christian camp up in the Sierras. So it's just beautiful to see generational change.
1: And, and it demonstrates the power of the impact of changed lives through Jesus Christ. It also demonstrates this ongoing sense that as much as the beginning days with Alice Ann that were part of this grassroots burden to do something, that that sense of grassroots community involvement continues to this day. People come, they volunteer, they conduct Bible studies with the women, training classes. You have churches that come in and volunteer, individuals that donate and support the ministry financially and prayerfully and, and by other ways. So I guess in a real sense that the original family feeling that was so much of what Shepherd Gate was about in the beginning has continued on to this day and that with the component of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ has really has been the, the the driving force of what's allowed this ministry to impact so many lives.
2: We do try to keep it home. The buildings are structured to be they're, they're very large houses, they're 11 bedrooms, but they are their homes. And so the women feel uh, security there. They don't feel like they're in an institution. Uh, certainly not in the shelter, they feel like they're home. And even the kids, um, instead of being ashamed to say they're going to the shelter on Portola, they say, I live in that big mansion on Portola. And they're proud to tell the other kids at school that. So it, it's just the self-esteem is just goes out of the roof, both on the facilities and, and the home feel. And they stay, uh, the families stay connected with us long after they're gone. They come back and volunteers. We have many of them that we hire as employees, both at our thrift stores. And they also become um, house moms and work on the campus and help ladies that were in the same condition they were. So the impact
1: is not only widespread, multi-generational, long-lasting. In fact, at the core, we could say the impact is eternal, Good. Yes, it is. From a spiritual standpoint. If folks want to come by and visit... Uh, this is kind of one of those things where you need to see it and experience. People say, gee, I, I love the sound of a ministry like that. And boy, I'd love to get involved. Our church would love to maybe come down and volunteer. We'd like to get behind the ministry financially. Uh, in a real sense, uh, seeing is believing, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And we love people to come visit. Uh, if they just call the office, 443-4283, 443-GATE, uh, make an appointment, we'll definitely have staff there to lead them. I'd love to lead them through uh, and meet the people. Uh, so we'd, we'd love to have guests.
1: And of course, if you'd like to find out more about Shepherds Gate, you can get details on the web by simply going to shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. you have campuses both in Brentwood and in Livermore. That's correct. And so if somebody would say, hey, we, boy, this sounds like something we'd like to get behind and support, they can call, come out, visit one of the two campuses, both if they'd like, and of course, uh, get a chance to discover more about this dynamic ministry that's been changing women's lives and impacting those for Christ right here in the Bay Area. Details again on the web at Shepherds gate.org that's shepherds gate